welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. Hey folks, it's Michael O'Sullivan, the host of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. And I just wanted to jump in here really quick and let you know that this particular episode of Oil & Gas Onshore is made possible by our friends over at UTSI International. Now these guys are the experts in cybersecurity engineering for SCADA and industrial control systems. And as you know, the protection of these operational environments right now is really critical, maybe more than ever. UTSI has decades of experience designing and building all of these systems compliant with the latest cybersecurity guidelines, everything from engineering to remediation plans, tabletop testing, the whole bit, UTSI has cybersecurity covered. So wherever you are in your cybersecurity journey, UTSI will get you where you need to be. Learn more at UTSI.com. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Gunnar Kaiser, process engineer at Hess Corporation. Gunnar, welcome to the show, man. How's things in your world today? Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. It's our first podcast, so pretty exciting. Hey, you're going to crush it, man. I think, you know, most people, it's funny because if you were to take a poll of all the people I've had on and guess which ones is their first podcast, I don't think you would know it. It's just more of, you know, when we get in the flow of the conversation, everyone can have a conversation and most people love talking about themselves. So as long as I ask good questions, I think we'll be fine, which that's my intent. But for the listeners, you know, it's interesting because I invited Gunnar on the show and and recently I've had a lot of inbound requests. Hey, I'd love to come on your show, you know, but it's a balance of me asking folks that I feel can add value to my audience. And then people, of course, trying to get on because, you know, they have some fascinating stuff to share, you know, for the ecosystem of oil and gas. But I invited Gunnar on because... He sent me, and I say he, you're right here, but you sent me a really nice message on LinkedIn. And actually, you offered up some value for nothing in return by simply just saying, Hey, you know, I've listened to your content. You know, thanks for everything. And if you ever need any information or just want to chat about the Bakken, I've had most of my career here. And so after reading your profile and your experience, I figured you'd be, you know, a really good candidate to have on the show. And so first I want to thank you for reaching out and just putting yourselves out there and offering value for nothing in return. Because I don't think that why I say through observation, not very many people do that, right? It's very transactional to say, hey, let me take you for coffee. And all of a sudden they're trying to sell you something. And mm-hmm. unless your company's trying to sell me something, which it would be very odd. You just did it out of the goodness of your heart, man. So I want to thank you for that and kind of, you know, start off by saying like, where did that come from? Like, how come all of a sudden we're just like, Hey, I just want to help you if you need help. Like, cause that's pretty rare. And I think that speaks highly of your character. Yeah. Yeah. So the main reason I kind of did that is I'm, you know, a big proponent of educating, you know, fellow individuals in the industry, as well as, you know, someone who might be thinking about, you know, getting in the energy industry, just kind of providing content, providing knowledge, sharing knowledge, and, you know, just the everything that, you know, oil and gas global network has going on is just a huge, you know, fan of, you know, you guys are getting out there networking, you know, spreading, you know, the good word about the industry and everything. So, I mean, I'm yeah. just a fan being like, you know, heck yeah, I love what you guys are doing. You know, I'd love to be a part of it. Like if you ever need something on the Bakken, feel free to reach out. Awesome. If, you know, ever thinking about setting an event up here, let me know. I just really wanted to kind of help as much as I could because, you know, just love seeing what you guys are doing and, you know, any way I can help out, would love to. So that's kind of yeah. where that came from. Just wanting to, you know, keep provided, you know, as much information as you guys might need. 
Yeah, no, that's super cool, man. It's, you know, being from Canada, the Bakken has a little place in my heart too. And I never physically worked up there, but had lots of activities that I was a part of while being in Calgary and also being in Denver for a period of time. It's kind of that little diamond in the rough, right? It's been an area that has been around for so long. And actually, I remember doing a paper in school for my economics class about, you know, the railway system and trucking up in the Bakken and pipeline table. Because remember when the they were threatening to shut down a pipeline up there? I forget Dabble. which Dabble, that's right. Yeah. So I had to write a paper on that and like the economic outcome of if they did shut it down, how that would impact, you know, this, that, and the other. So I really took a deep dive in the Bakken and not necessarily from like a production perspective, but more so on like just the takeaway capacity and then where it all started. So you know the Bakken has such a neat history. And, but right now, and I remember in 2012, I want to say there was about 200 rigs up there. Now I think there's about 30 ish. And I know you're on the process engineering side, but I mean, just overall, like what makes a Bakken unique from your standpoint and whether that's from the process engineering side or just in general, like what kind of interests you about the Bakken? Cause you, like you said, you've had your, most of your career up there. Yep. Yeah. There's actually quite a few things. And one thing that I didn't know when I got into it, and probably most people don't know is North Dakota has been an oil producing state since the fifties. I think yeah. 1951, maybe it was the first oil well was drilled yeah. or a successful oil well was drilled. And so it's been around for a long time. Obviously it was, you know, in different formations, the Devonian, Solarian, a few others along those lines. So there's been a couple booms actually up in North Dakota, but with the Bakken, for me, it's just kind of, it was crazy to see that explode as I was getting into the energy industry. Yeah. Like when I was in high school, you know, finished up in 2013. And that's right when I got into starting my petroleum journey and petroleum engineering at Montana Tech. And I remember just in high school, I had a few of my older brothers, buddies who were going over to the Bakken to work. And I was like, what is this thing? Like what's going on over there? And, you know, just seeing the news about how it's booming and everything and just kind of having that you know, unique history about how it really was, you know, a boom town, you know, back in the day when you had your mining boom towns and stuff, it was like, man, this stuff's still going on. This is pretty crazy. Yeah. Just how fast it, you know, ramped up and helped, you know, United States become energy independent. It has a lot of big positives to it, you know, as mm-hmm. far as, you know, energy security and just, you know, country stability as well. So yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, that play just really contributed to something on a much larger scale. No, you're absolutely right. You know, the whole shale revolution, the Bakken had, you know, was a huge contributor to that. You know, a lot of people went there, they really dialed in their, you know, drilling completions, efficiencies, frack efficiencies, you know, they drilling, it got so easy and so fast that cycle times got improved. And so arguably like it was a huge proponent of advancing our industry, at least on the upstream side. So yeah, it's got a really neat history. And it's funny because most people who go up there don't like working up there, <laughs> but at least the ones that I, you know, from, cause I'm in the mud industry, mud engineers yeah. go up there and unless they're from Montana or that part of the country, you know, it's kind of one of those like, Oh, here we go back up to Dickinson or Minot or wherever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not too pretty, but most oil field places are not. But you know, we're going to continue to talk about you know business and stuff up there. But I'm curious, you went to school with John Giesbrick, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. So, how would you describe the college John compared to how he is now? And I don't know if you keep in touch with him. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But you know, I'm curious. How was John like? You know, what was it like going to school with John? 
Yeah. So he's actually, you know, connecting with him on LinkedIn is how, you know, your kind of content got in front of me. And okay, he came up to Minot, what was it? I think earlier in the fall, and we kind of met up and caught up, which was nice to see him. And of course, catch up on the hundreds of things that he's been doing. <laughs> yeah, he's but, done. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. But no, he's honestly, college John is the same John as he is now, man. Just go, nice. go, go doing something new every weekend. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, it's kind of funny because, you know, with football in college, I had to stay in town quite a bit for practices and, you know, getting, you know, schoolwork done that I couldn't do during the week and such. And I talked to him on Monday in our class. He's like, oh yeah, you know, we went, you know, four hours away and did some backcountry skiing or found some hot springs, you know, way up in the mountains. And I'm just like, man, I'm jealous. That sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah. No, he's like the male door of the Explorer, man. He's always <laughs> doing something. And then he's got to another successful adventure, his little tent business. And yeah, mm-hmm. everything. And for those who know John, if you follow him on Instagram or any social, he's always taking fancy drone pictures of like whatever crazy adventure he's on and which I totally admire, you know, he doesn't have kids and he's just like living life to the fullest. I met him It was funny when I had him on the podcast, it was like maybe a few months after he touched down in Houston and he did more in three months around Houston than I had done in like years. And I just like, John, dude, you're like, how do you do so much stuff? And at the end of the day, it's just like, that's, he makes it a priority. Like if he's not working and has to be somewhere, he's out adventuring around, which, you know, it's great. He's, I had to bring him up because he's such a good guy. I see him at every event I ever go to. He's there and shaking Mm -hmm. hands, smiling, chatting it up and He's a networking machine and, and just such a great guy. Like he's always oh, yeah. willing to give. And if you need something, he's there. So again, you know, mutual friends for those who, you know, if you're on LinkedIn, you should follow him. John Giesbrick, he's a beauty. But anyway, so, you know, you, you mentioned football and, and I have to say, when I read your profile, I was like, yeah, I connect with this guy. I mean, I played football from the time I was five years old playing flag. Didn't quite make it into college. I decided to go work drilling rigs instead, but played all through high school, went and played in BC Place, you know, for provincials and all that. But yeah, what was it like playing football, you know, at Montana Tech? You're the first person I've met that's played there. So I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. It was an absolute blast, man. Some of the, you know, looking back, some of the best times of my life, moments of my life for playing football. Met a lot of good dudes there, had some great coaches, and some of my best friends still today are you know, or from that experience. And so it was a great time, honestly, just being a student athlete, there's so many, you know, life skills that you take away from it, you know, honestly, life and business related stuff, especially in college when, you know, the football is kind of demanding a lot more from you. Mm -hmm. And so as far as, you know, so many real life skills, you know, working in teams, you know, performing under pressure, you know, being able to manage your time, that was a huge thing. My first semester, I think I had like 19 credits and didn't redshirt and I was traveling and playing. So that was, you know, a huge skill you had to learn. Holy Other God. things. Yeah, it was an exciting time. But, you know, discipline, you know, being your best self and competing at a high level. A lot of those, you know, life skills really, you know, you're taken away from the sport and why I loved it so much and why it continues to help me today. Yeah. But, you know, at Montana Tech had a great time. We're in the Frontier Conference. And for those who don't know, Montana Tech's an NAIA school. So it's basically like a, a D2 school. But there definitely had some good competition. I played some schools in Oregon that had a lot of individuals who used to play at, you know, Oregon State or University of Oregon, the Ducks and stuff. So there's definitely some, you know, talented dudes in the conference. So it made playing fun and everything. So I got to travel, got to meet a lot of good people and, and just have fun. You know, a lot of people you know, when they go to school somewhere, they, you know, they're not, they don't know a whole lot of people. They, you know, join a fraternity or sorority or whatnot. 
and not saying football is the same thing, but being able to go and have a, you know, a group of, you know, a family more or less to be able to hang out with and spend most of your time with was, was an absolute blast. And plus cool. when you're, I mean, playing football in Montana, you know, our field overlooks the Highland mountains and a few other mountain ranges. So it's, I've seen pictures, man. It looks so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a unique place to play and absolutely loved it. Can't say enough about it, man. It's, it was wow. a great time. That's cool. Well, I want to set the stage here because obviously, you know, for those listening, Gunner's pretty humble. He didn't mention his football and, and academic accolades. So I'm going to list them off here. <laughs> you got the academical all conference 2013 to 16. You got the academic all American 2013 to 16 captain of the football team, 2016 all conference safety, 2016 Conference Defensive Player of the Year 2016, All-American 2016, <laughs> National Defensive Player of the Year 2016. I mean, that that's pretty impressive, man. You should be extremely proud of yourself. And I love how you have it on LinkedIn, but man, I mean, super impressive, dude. I mean, let me ask you this. Did it come natural to you or did you put it? Now, obviously you put in the work regardless, but mm-hmm. I mean, for those that are like, whoa, I want my kid to have those types of stats. Like, what could you say on how you were able to deliver and perform at such a high level? Because petroleum engineering is no joke. I know that. And then on top of that, like putting in blood, sweat, and tears out on the field day in and day out, being a leader, you know, crushing school, like just elaborate. Like, how did you accomplish all that? Yeah. So it's definitely a lot of hard work. There's no way around it. And, you know, in business and life in general, you know, there's no free lunch. You got to put in the time, you got to put in the work and it's not just on the field. It's in the weight room. It's everywhere else. So that's a big thing. You just can't get around. You have to put in the time. And one thing I always did for myself that I felt kind of put me on a different level is I had a little something in my mind where I was always competing against myself, but also thinking about there's someone else out there doing the same thing. And I got to work harder than them. So, you know, the workout may, you know, ask for only doing, you know, 10 reps or only doing, you know, 10, hundred yard sprints, but not, I'm going to do 15 because, you know, everyone else is going to do 10, but I'm going to do, I'm going to get a leg up. Nice. So it's always just having that imaginary person on the other side that you're competing against. It's like, I need to beat them. And, you know, this is going to come to play, you know, on the field one day. Wow. So, that's a big thing I always had in the back of my mind, but also, you know, being physically, you know, able to do it, but also the mental side of the game is another huge player too. In high school, I actually had two significant injuries. My sophomore year tore some stuff in my knee and then my junior year dislocated my elbow. And so both of those, yeah, they're tough things to get through. Honestly, two back injuries and sophomore and junior years are like the biggest years for schools recruiting. And I wasn't really playing. And so that was kind of tough luck. I mean, it all worked out great. If I would, you know, go back in time, I wouldn't change a thing because, you know, going to Montana tech and the experiences, the people I met there, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world, but, you know, having the mental toughness, mental discipline, that's another huge side of, you know, working on and training yourself as well to, you know, be able to compete at that high level. So, yeah. Now, so where does that mental discipline come from? Cause I think that's what separates a lot of people you know, the good from the great is just a mental discipline and pushing past the pain. You know what I mean? Both mentally, physically, and emotionally. I mean, was it parents, was it coaches, you know, grandparents, where does that come from? Yep. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of the things I've been able to accomplish in my life, you know, on the field and professionally, there's no way I would have been able to do it without the parents I had that raised me right. 
Hell yeah. You know, they were hard on me. They're tough, but it's because I was a little rat sometimes, to be honest, <laughs> growing up. Yeah. It's a little tough to deal with, a little spitfire. But honestly, their careers, they're successful. They raised, you know, me and my two older brothers the right way. And so I definitely cannot, you know, just assume I did it by myself because there's no way that I did it. And, you know, I had a lot of great coaches along the way. My college position coach and head coach, he was, I learned a ton from him. I mean, he really kind of helped me become the player that I am. And he was huge on mental toughness and everything. And he was a good coach because now he's the assistant defensive coordinator at University of Washington, the Huskies. So, oh, cool. You know, he was a very talented coach and learned a lot from him. And so, yeah. And it's also, you know, internally wanting to be that way too, you know, realizing that you want to, you know, compete at a high level and, you know, jumping in and having more or less the courage and the motivation to do it. And also kind of testing yourself too. It's like, all right. I remember one thing I did and those that played with me, I don't know if anyone would listen to this or it would be listening to the podcast, but something I would do is no matter how cold it was outside during practice, I never wore undershirt under the pads. Even it was, you know, 10 degrees, you know, five degrees, sometimes negatives. I was like, no, like if I can practice and like mentally get through the cold and it's like, no, I don't feel it. And just trick my mind to say, I don't feel it and test myself along those lines. And like on game day, then I'm going to be fine. Wow. So it's, dude, that's some David Goggins (laughs) stuff right there, man. That's savage. It's pretty extreme. But I mean, if you want to compete at a high level, you got to test yourself. You got to push yourself to the limits and you know, when it's, you know, five degrees outside and you're getting hit or you're hitting people, it hurts, but yeah, you got to put that away and just, you know, just know, okay, you know, we got to get through this for a couple hours. And after that I can ice and then, you know, I'll be fine. (laughs) Wow. So like you hear people talk about it, but living it and having someone like yourself actually talk through it. I remember, and like, you know, growing up and playing football in BC, you know, we play into the fall and it could be snowing, you know, when Mm -hmm. playoffs comes, like, there's snow on the ground and the field is not soft. It's frozen <laughs> from the night before. And yeah, so I can't say that I didn't put on the old underwarmers long sleeves, but yeah, that's again, a huge testament to your character, man. I think it's amazing. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I'm going to kind of switch gears here and ask something. And she asked us a little bit towards the beginning, but I was just wanting to talk football a little bit there, but what's your ideal Friday night look like? I mean, if you had all the opportunity in the world to go anywhere, spend money, spend it with whoever you wanted to, what would that look like for you, Gunner? Yeah. So I'd have to say it'd be something related to friends and family for sure. You know, being pretty far away from friends and family, love and cherish every, any type of, you know, time I can get with them. So one thing I always loved growing up is going to the lake and hanging out, you know, jet skiing, snorkeling, do that kind of stuff. And then also, you know, at the house having big bonfires as well. So I'd kind of mesh those together Yeah. and be, you know, going somewhere crazy, you know, if I have all the money in the world and can do whatever I want, you know, going to a pretty cool lake cabin somewhere remote, you know, big beach area and just hanging out at night with everyone and having a big fire on the beach. That'd be something that would be pretty fun. And I can identify with that, you know, growing up in the Okanagan Valley in BC, that was how we spent, you know, a lot of weekends with family and friends was on the lake with a fire, whether it was camping or in a cabin. Yeah. You know, you saying that I could visualize it. It's like, yeah, that would be awesome. I like that. So where are you from originally? You're from somewhere up north. Yep. Yep. So I grew up just north of Spokane, Washington. So on the eastern side of the state. Ah, okay. Awesome. So what was it like growing up there? Man, I loved it. We did a lot of outdoor stuff. I mean, we were half an hour, 40 minutes away from the closest ski hill. And then within an hour, there was like three more mountains within two hours. I mean, it was unlimited because we had, 
you know, Eastern Washington has a few ski hills and then, you know, you got Idaho right there, you got Montana right there. And of course you got, you know, Canada, the Rockies just North of us. So we spent a lot of time going up and skiing, you know, being on the lake. I mean, it was a great area to grow up, honestly, a lot of outdoor, you know, hiking, fishing, hunting type of stuff. So yeah, loved it. And honestly, it's kind of funny that I ended up in the oil industry because it's, you know, Washington state and the oil industry. It's, <laughs> those aren't two things you usually see together. Yeah. I was going to ask that, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, I absolutely loved, loved, loved growing up in the area and still got one of my brothers over there. So go back and visit a lot and, you know, go out and adventure and everything. So cool. No, that's again, something that same thing with BC, you know, very outdoorsy lakes, mountains, outdoor activities, all the fun stuff, which down here in Houston, we don't get that much of, but that's okay. So yeah, again, a guy growing up in Washington, all of a sudden in the oil field. So how did that work? And then petroleum engineering, because a lot of folks that I've met along the way that have gotten to the oil field from say non-traditional oil field countries or like areas within the country, you know, they say did mechanical or chemical, and then they kind of stumbled their way into, you know, the oil field, but you studied at a, you know, traditionally oil and gas school Mm -hmm. that's well known for petroleum engineering. So, I mean, curious on how that evolved. Yeah. So honestly, I, you know, growing up knew very little about the oil industry. Closest I ever got to it was, you know, obviously filling up the truck. And so it honestly started with football because when I was looking for places to play, school started recruiting me and luckily Montana Tech called and was able to set up a visit and go check it out. And at that point, you know, Montana Tech has a really, really good, you know, petroleum engineering department. And so they kind of talked it up a little bit, kind of explained it to me what it is. And I always knew I was more of a math science brain than reading or writing for sure. And so I knew I wanted to go something in the engineering field, no idea what I wanted to do. But after that, you know, doing that visit for football, talking to alumni that were there, talking to administration individuals there that would become future mentors, they really talked it up and it seemed like something, you know, was really interesting to me. And of course, at the time, you know, it was booming. Everything was going great. Talking about how, you know, awesome it is. This is great career and future opportunities. So I was like, you know what? The football program, they just won a conference championship. And, you know, Butte, Montana is a gorgeous area. Love it there. Met my fiance there as well. So that's why, you know, congrats. Yeah. Holds a special place in my heart. Yeah. Everything just seemed to line up. It almost seemed like it was destiny with, you know, a couple injuries on high school leading to you know, playing smaller college football and then a great program to dive into. And I rolled the dice and I was like, Hey, let's see how it works out. And haven't looked back since, man, I've absolutely loved the industry and all the experiences I've had so far. Yeah. And you must love it enough to stay up North. Oh yeah. Which is cool. So (laughs) yeah. So, you you know, you do your petroleum engineering, you get out, it looks like according to your LinkedIn, you had some pretty cool internships looked like at Apache and was it Apache? You had a couple internships, right? While you're at school. Yep. Yep. So I started with first one was with Anadarko in East Texas and Carthage, Texas, worked the Haynesville stuff. And the next summer was with Era Energy in Bakersfield, ah. California, out oh, nice. in the Bell Ridge field. And then the last one was with Apache down in Houston, working West Texas stuff. So very yeah, cool. Throughout the summers, they're pretty busy and you know, challenging to stay in shape for football too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But learned a lot of cool stuff and got to travel around the country, you know, places I'd never been before. So yeah. it, was, it was pretty fun. You got exposure to a lot of very, you know, great basins. And so very well-rounded, it looks like. And then after you graduated, you got on with Hess, correct? And now you're a process engineer, which I mean, for me, I'm assuming that's 
on well, I don't even know. What is a process engineer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's more kind of facility based, honestly. Like it's I'm involved in production operations. So, obviously, you know, making sure oil flows to our customers. And so what I do is pretty much everything from after the wellhead to the separation facilities and then to, you know, our lacked produce water skid pumps and everything downstream of that. So, everything basically facility based on the well pad just making sure that equipment, you know, stays running properly and then troubleshooting problems and diving into new solutions and such. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what excites you the most about your job there as a process engineer and and, in with Hess especially? Yeah, honestly, every project can be something completely different. And what's kind of unique about my role is that I never know what I'm going to touch. And I know a little bit about a lot. And so for example, like, you know, at the beginning of the day, I could be working with someone on talking about pipe spec and are we building, you know, this facility to the, you know, correct A10 spec or, or, you know, whatnot. And then in the afternoon, I could be talking with an electrician about a certain project. And then after that, I could be talking to a programmer about logic within the, you know, PLC HMI. So wow. what excites me is I learn and touch a lot of different things, which is pretty cool. And every project that, you know, I kind of take on, it's something new and a chance to learn and network with you know other people and learn as much as I can to kind of build that breadth of knowledge. Yeah, no, that's super fascinating. And it sounds, you know, it's, it's cool to get to be able to touch so many different aspects of the value chain on that side of it. I mean, again, without getting into details, but like, is there anything fascinating that you see coming down the pipeline on the process engineering side? You know, because arguably right now, it's a lot of about, you know, digitalization, innovation, technology, you know, because we as an industry are facing amongst many other industries as well, but, you know, a considerable labor shortage. And so talking with folks in sort of my ecosystem, it's like, how can we do more with less people? Right. So, I mean, can you touch on anything? You don't have to specifically get into details, but what kind of excites you about the innovation side of what your role is in your discipline? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few things going on specifically starting with kind of labor shortages and, I haven't really directly kind of had any, you know, role in it by any means, but the, I know that on the, the surface facility side of things, you know, industry-wide, there's talk about being able to have, you know, site surveillance remotely and have cameras set up on site that can detect, you know, levels in tanks. It can detect when facilities shut down. It can detect when, you know, you, you might have, you know, an unlit flare. It can detect when you might be venting. So mm, having some cool. kind of, yeah, camera on site that really just pans, that's able to pick up you know, everything that's going on that site. So, you know, whereas traditionally in the old days, you know, you had to be on site, everything was mechanical, you know, you had, to, you know, strap tanks, you had to go and, you know, manually, you know, calculate tank math and everything along those lines. But yeah, now it's, you know, potentially not being able to have anyone on site and just only go when you need to go. Yeah, that seems like it could be something pretty exciting. And I don't have anything specific on it, but I know that yeah. could be, you know, an industry changing piece of technology. Of course, because I think arguably a lot of people's sort of vision and goals, especially with field operations, is to take as many people out of the field as possible. And then not only for there's obviously cost savings and they're having less people in the field, but you look at, you know, the carbon footprint of everyone driving around all the time. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, a safety perspective as well. People driving, you know, in the oil field, that's 
for us is so challenging is having people driving when they're tired late at night. I mean, obviously things are running 24 seven. So you get people, you know, on holidays and weekends driving when they're probably wishing they're at home or, you know, and so it's, I think all that ties into just, you know, getting people home at the end of the day or at the end of their hitch and less people you have out there and sort of those, you know, there's those risky, more risky areas and, you know, maybe yeah. not so much on the, you know, facility side, but there's dangers everywhere you go. And it could be, you know, walking up and down stairs, which again, I'm not trying to sound like a softie. I've ran up and down rig stairs for years of my life, but at the end of the day, the way our world is evolving, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to bring everyone to where we can automate as much as we possibly can and collect quality data. Cause if you're out there again, I remember, you know, as whether it was a roughneck or a money engineer going out and strapping tanks, you did it sometimes at two in the morning when you're half asleep and you're measuring a, you know, a long dipstick that you made out of a broom handle, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't call that, you know, very much quality data yeah. and you're kind of doing some roughneck math in your tally book that has a bunch of mud all over it. Like, you know, that stuff needs to be automated. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's just an example, but I mean, that's really cool. And one thing I did want to highlight for you, you mentioned too, and this may get aired afterwards, but you're going to be presenting at, I think you said it was the Montana Tech Symposium. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So what is the Montana Tech Symposium for those who aren't familiar? Yeah. So it's a spring symposium, a spring event Montana Tech does every year. And obviously with COVID the last two years, it's been a little different. Essentially, it's kind of like a mini SPE conference, more or less, just for the school. They invite, you know, alumni or just other individuals from the industry to come and share, you know, what they've been working on related to, you know, current industry topics. What are some of the things being worked and bring it in? It's just like a little technical conference. It allows for, you know, obviously other industry individuals are allowed to come, but it also provides a good opportunity for the students to kind of get in the know and know what's going on in the industry right now. So it's a cool little... Cool chance to do some networking as well. I remember, you know, being a student at Montana Tech was a good chance for me to get to know people in the industry, learn a little bit more, kind of build that network out, as well as just learn new things and kind of, you know, maybe the one of the presentations really drives me to a, a particular discipline within the industry I can study. So yeah. it's a good kind of bridging event for students and industry to meet together and network and talk. And of course, there's just some few, you know, fun events outside of the conference as well for networking and, you know, playing yeah. golf and everything. So that's really cool. Actually, a buddy of mine, Jake Voss, who's with Phillips, he was a few years before COVID, he'd invited me up there. He said it's a blast. And, you know, unfortunately, I think it might have been the year of COVID, actually, that they ended up not doing it because of obvious reasons. But, mm-hmm. you know, at some point, I'd love to get up there and do it because there's so many, I'm sure, you know, like it was back in the day when I was at SAIT, but so many people from Canada end up going to Montana Tech. So it's kind of, it's almost like a little reunion of a bunch of, you know, <laughs> like ladies and gents from up North, many of which are Canadian. It's mm-hmm. always fun to weave my way into that culture because it's part of who I am too. But for those who aren't able to attend, like a lot of the presentations and papers and stuff, are they say published on a website or like if people are interested in it, wow, that sounds like some good information. I mean, sure. There's lots of stuff to talk about. Is there resources for people to access from the conference? Do you know? I'm not sure if anything comes outside of the conference. I know that sometimes individuals present SPE papers and projects along those lines that they've done. So I'm sure those are out there, but cool. coming outside of the conference, I'm not sure how much is actually broadcasted you know, online or somewhere else. I think there might be not sure if on their website, they kind of have an overview of the topics, but I think it might just be more of an in-person thing. If I remember, gotcha. it's, it's been a couple of years since I've been there. Yeah, no, <laughs> everything's good. Yeah. 
yeah, kind of <laughs> blow off the dust from all that. But you know, if yeah. you know for some reason you do find anything, fire it to me, and I'd love to highlight it and share it. Because again, it's all about educating folks, right? And that's something that yep. we talked about before we started recording. And I think it's a challenge within the industry is a lot of times we love preaching to the choir about how great oil and gas is and, you know, unreliable renewables and everything else, blah, 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 which I'm not going to get into that, but it's, you know, it's oftentimes us against the world, which I think it needs to be us and the rest of the world and not, you know, pick and choose sides. But with that being said, you know, those are tough conversations to have, especially for, with folks that have, you know, have a sort of a deep conviction as to, whether oil and gas is good, whether it's bad, whether renewables are good or bad, whatever. Energy is such a complex system. And especially when you're talking about economics with energy, it is some of the most complex topics and no one knows it all. We're all just trying to figure it out. But Gunnar, mm-hmm. I mean, from your side of things, you know, being a younger gentleman in energy, you know, there's, from what I've read, a lot of the petroleum engineering programs are really having a tough time finding people to fill the programs because most of them are more interested on whether it be the data science stuff or, you know, just tech related things. So what's your take and then how could we as an industry help educate people who are otherwise have been sort of led to believe that we need to just completely stop the production of fossil fuels and move into something else? Because I think it's a problem and I think it's worth the conversation and that we need to have, but we can't just have it amongst ourselves. We have to have it with yep. those who have opposing views. But in order to do that, you have to you know, have a level of empathy and kindness towards these people, because if not, then it just, it makes things worse. So I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the last couple of years with the push away from oil and the green initiatives that are ongoing, in addition to the, you know, negative $30 barrel oil and just the downturn in the industry, you know, they're definitely, you know, it's easy to see it's kind of taken a hit, you know, it's not as attractive of an industry as it once was. And so I think one thing that's actually, I mean, unfortunately a positive is everything, you know, for the industry, everything going on in Russia and Ukraine, And just that's bringing to light, like how much of a player oil is internationally. And obviously everything, you know, it's going on is, you know, terrible over there. And, you know, hearts, prayers go out to the people of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the challenges that Europe's going through right now with trying to figure out, well, if Russia cuts us off, we're not in a good spot. And so they're kind of, you know, looking at ramping up some of their, you know, energy investment. I know, I think it's Germany. It's looking at making some LNG terminals. I believe they've kind of been putting off for a while and now they're really looking at, you know, increasing those so the United States and other countries can come bring in some of the gas to kind of fuel their country. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's no doubt that oil and gas have a role for a long time. The world's just way too reliant on it. And so, you know, the biggest thing we can do is to, you know, I've heard so many people say this, you know, get out and talk to your neighbor, get out, talk to your neighbor. And it's like, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes it's easier said than done. And something I think can help is being able to have resources to be able to do that. And one thing I just want to plug in here is for those that don't know, there's a cool website called energy for me, the number four energy for me.org. Okay. They do have a lot of really good material that you can take to your sons or daughters, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, and talk to the youth because that is a huge thing when, you know, just thinking back, you know, getting outside of high school and, you know, early college days, it's like, I mean, a lot of the opinions I've formed are pretty strong and to change those is, it takes a lot, you know, it does effort to do so. So I think it is important to educate, you know, the youth while they're growing and while they're developing. And if, you know, you can get in and help kind of just teach, 
the younger individuals. It doesn't have to be super detailed, obviously, but you know, energy for me, and you know, there's other content out there could really help, you know, spread the word about, hey, yes, we know that you know climate change is real. It's something's going on. We need to you know think about our footprint. But at the same time, if we cut it, you know, right now, I mean, economically, ethically, it's not going to be a good thing. Yeah. And it'd be pretty scary to see what happens because people just don't know, you know, what we actually use oil for. You know, it's not just gas that goes into your car. It's so many different things. And I won't list them off here because I mean, most people on the podcast probably know, but you know, it's, we can't just cut the taps and you know, it's, if we don't say something, it's just going to get harder and harder to, you know, pull talent in, Yeah, you know, the legal side of things will be more challenging and not saying that we can't improve by any means. I mean, we can definitely do our part you know, operating cleaner and helping, you know, fund initiatives to, you know, combat climate change and everything. So, but the biggest thing is just getting out, talking to it and, you know, honestly having the courage to do it. It's a lot easier said than done, but, you know, we need to do something, you know, we got to start sooner than later. Yeah, no, that's true. And it is challenging. I mean, cause I mean, again, I've been in this industry since I was 18 and I grew up in British Columbia, which arguably has a lot of parallels to say California, where there's a lot of folks that are very pro renewable energy. And they very much believe that climate catastrophe is so severe that, you know, by any means necessary, we have to stop the production of fossil fuel. And I get it. Like I grew up in that environment and I was, you know, essentially around folks that believe that. And if, you know, you form opinions as you're growing up, it's hard for you to think otherwise. And it's kind of like if you like if you grow up in a household where it's like ride or die Republican or ride or die Democrat, like chances are you're probably going to grow up and have those beliefs without doing your own research. And again, not to make it polarizing at all, but it's like it's not red, it's not blue, but like most of us are purple at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's, you know, and, and again, so to have constructive conversations, it's you know, and I've seen this in Houston and, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are promoting as, you know, conferences that invite, you know, other ecosystems of energy into it. Because if we just have oil and gas conferences, well, then we're all just, you know, talking amongst ourselves and you're not really moving the needle, but why not have an oil and gas or say like an energy conference in Los Angeles and invite Chevron to come speak and like have speakers come like high level speakers from whether it's, you know, biofuels to, you know, wind energy, solar, geothermal, you know, oil and gas and like post the party and invite everybody to the party. Don't yep, have an oil yeah. and gas party and only invite oil and gas people. Now, granted, sometimes you need that depending on the objective of the conference or the event or the party, but we're slowly starting to see the integration of everyone coming together. The guys that, you know, I'm going to plug them. I love their friends of mine that did digital wildcatters. They just had a conference here in Houston called Empower. They brought people from the Bitcoining space. There was, I met a lady from Los Angeles who has had her own wind energy company. I met a couple gentlemen, one gentleman, Brian Leachman. He's a stud. He's from Canada, lives in Wyoming. He used to work for you know a bunch of EMPs, traditional you know, drilling operations kind of guy. Now he's got his own company in Wyoming integrating also forms of energy and Bitcoining mining. And but there was people from all walks of energy. And there was a, such constructive conversations that it was very refreshing versus going to like a traditional oil and gas conference. And you just sit there and everyone pounds their chest about how much we're the best and everyone else sucks. 
And I get it, right? Like I've been in this space for so long, like I understand why. And But at the end of the day, and people probably get tired of me saying it, but I'm just going to preach it forever. But it's not us or them, it's us and them. And yep. so anyway, it's, but yeah, again, like educating people the best we can without putting them down. I mean, I remember when I was in Pennsylvania going, you know, it was in 2010, show revolution was kicking off a bunch of people from Canada and Texas and everywhere else in the country were coming up there to frack the living crap out of the Marcella shale. Like that's what was happening. And people thought that because of, you know, that, that that's why their taps were lighting on fire because of Gasland, the documentary that came out back then. And anytime I'd go somewhere right away, they could identify that I was from somewhere else, not Pennsylvania. And then, you know, they kept asking questions and ultimately it led to me, Oh, I'm here because I like help oil and gas companies drill and then frack for gas. And they just, you know, there was a negative tone or sort of there was a shift in energy towards the conversation, but you know, I just was genuine and nice and said, Hey, like I'm getting my haircut here. And because I'm here, I'm, you know, there's, I'm the only one in here right now. So that's probably a good thing. Like you're generating revenue to which then you can mm-hmm. feed your kids. And I said, I can promise you, like, I don't want to be here forever. I'm not here to take people's jobs. I'm just here to help support, you know, businesses and, you know, provide you guys with affordable and reliable energy. And then I'm going to go back home to Canada and then hopefully someone I can train them to have a good paying job here because there's not many here right now. And so people are like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. And, but anyway, it's those kind of things, but you know, there's an interesting conversation and I was at the Permian Basin summit here last week. And a lot of the conversations from a lot of high up executives were these conversations, it's like, how do we change the narrative? And it's, you know, thankfully for social media, everyone can have a voice And as long as it's not like degrading or putting people down, because that's a surefire way of just closing people's minds is just like genuinely trying to help and bring things to light. And, you know, I think I have hope in humanity that everyone will figure this out and we're not going to you know, freeze people to death and (laughs) make energy like extremely unfeasible with regards to how high it's going to get in pricing. But anyway, it's a good conversation. So Gunnar, again, I kind of went on a tangent there, but you know, for you, is there anything else that you'd like to share or anything that, you know, just any advice for the people listening before we kind of close up here? I think just, I guess, first kind of building off of some of the comments you made, you know, as far as getting out and talk to other individuals, I think for those who haven't read the seven habits of highly effective people, I highly recommend it. Yes. I love that book, man. One of the skills I think that can really apply there. One of the habits is seek first to understand then be understood. So, you know, if you take the time, be compassionate, listen to what their main worries are, and then kind of address those main worries and explain them in a way exactly like you did in Pennsylvania, saying like, hey, you know, I'm here generating, you know, jobs, helping generate jobs and and revenue for the, the county, for the state. I think, you know, approaching it the right way does take more effort, but it is the right thing to do and actually driving change. I believe that is definitely the right way to go about it. So, yeah, but other than that, you know, one thing that recently I've been able to do and fortunate to do, I think just kind of sharing with everyone is in a big role to also kind of help keep, you know, talent coming into the industry is, you know, giving back to, you know, wherever you came from. You know, I'm very appreciative of, of Montana Tech, love the school, love everyone there, love the town. And we set up a scholarship recently to kind of specifically it was focused with, you know, an outstanding football player on the field, but also off the field. We gave our first scholarship this fall to an individual mechanical engineering. Nice. You know, he was a 4.0 student. And so it's kind of rewarding that hard work. And so 
that's wow. something I, you know, plug and, and motivate other people who are listening. You know, I mean, when I look at my past, there's no way I, you know, I'm getting to today without my parents, without my coaches, without my mentors. There's no way I'd get here without them, you know, in the school and everything they provided. So, you know, just, you know, being humble and looking back and, and you know, continuing that train of, you know, helping bring more people, you know, into the oil industry or just into, you know, STEM roles in general, you know, because if someone's getting mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, I mean, they can still go work in the oil field. I mean, if they happen, you know, dive into petroleum, that's a plus. But yeah, I would just kind of encourage people to give back. You know, it's something, you know, we live pretty good lives here in the States and North America. So, you know, don't be afraid to give back and help others. Yeah, no, that's a great way to close out. One last question before we do let everyone back at it is, for someone like yourself, obviously extremely disciplined, I'd be willing to bet you do, but I'm curious to ask if you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success. Yeah, honestly, it probably sounds like a broken record because I know a lot of people probably say this, but obviously working out, huge thing for me. I took kind of a little break after college because it was, I mean, middle school to, you know, all the way through college working out you know, religiously. Yeah. So I took a break and I, I just saw myself kind of go downhill a little <laughs> bit. So thankfully, you know, after completing the MBA this last year and getting back into working out and it's just, it's crazy how you go and just do a little bit of physical exercise. You know, I do it in the morning. I get up early, yep. you know, around five o'clock and, and go work out. And it just really kind of sets the tone for the day. You know, I got this done. Now I'm ready to, you know, kick today's butt. And so that's something that's really big. And then for me, and then also just, you know, book a little time for yourself to relax, decompress, you know, for me, naturally I'm, I'm so go, go, go. And what's funny is sometimes I'm uncomfortable being comfortable. Yeah. Like, okay. I feel like I'm too much like in a comfy spot. I need to push myself. I need to get out and do something new. So, but still, you know, take a little time for yourself to relax, you know, enjoy yeah. the day. That's something else I think to remember and whatever that is for people, you know, whether it's reading for me, it's going out with my dog and, you know, playing fetch with them and, you know, going on bike rides and stuff and hanging out with the fiance. But remember to take some time, you know, for yourself as well as, as working out or, or two habits that I like to do every day. No, those are two great nuggets. And I'm like you, if you win the morning, you win the day. And yeah, we're extremely blessed to be here in the US, North America. There's a lot of crazy things happening. So for everyone out there, genuinely from the bottom of my heart, appreciate you listening to the podcast. Gunner, thanks again for reaching out to me that one day. It's just, it's so humbling, man. I sometimes don't feel like I deserve those types of, you know, the type of recognition, but, you know, just to help people and spread the good word is what it's all about, man. So thanks for joining me today. I'll put some links in the show notes, your LinkedIn, Hess's website, in case anyone who's not familiar with Hess and maybe, you know, what they offer and what they do, you know, in the energy space, we'll put that link in there. And anything else, Gunnar, that you want me to throw in there, I'm happy to do so, energyforme.org. And hopefully we can maybe add a few other links for resources for people to access. And for anyone, if you could, if you leave a review, please do so. Share this episode. If you have any ideas for a show, if you have anybody that you'd like me to interview, let me know. And I can't say that everyone who messaged me on LinkedIn is going to come on the podcast. But again, connect with me regardless. I always love talking and connecting with great people. And for those, always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.